Now, again, as you can see, we're in Romans 5, verses 12 through 14. Now, this morning, we are going to be learning that every single person is born dead in Adam. And I can see by your faces that that really excites the majority of you. Now, what does it mean to be born dead in Adam? Well, what it means is that when Adam sinned, the result of that is every single one of us is born into this life with the inability to do anything that's pleasing to God. And so this is why as Paul unpacks the rest of Romans 5, all the way to the end of the chapter, he's going to show the necessity of a future Adam, a future representative that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who will undo what Adam did. But here, <clears throat> excuse me, in Romans 5, 12 through 14, the focus is just what you see on the screen. Every person died in Adam. So I'm going to begin by reading the text in context and feel free to follow along in your own version. Paul said this, Romans 5, 12 through 14, he said, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Now, dear ones, notice here we are going to a brand new section in Romans. In Romans 5, 1 through 11, the theme was this hope that we have, the assurance of future glory. Now, as we transition into Romans 5, 12, all the way to the end of the chapter, the focus is going to be on the basis for this assurance, namely the work of Christ. And you see, what Paul is going to have to address is what we often would call the potential fly in the ointment. Now, what's the fly in the ointment or the possible obstacle in the way of our future glory? It's sin and death. It's sin and death. And so what Paul's going to show us in Romans chapter 5, the rest of the verses now, verses 12 through 21, is at the end of the day, humanity has two representatives. You're either going to be represented by Adam or by Christ. Okay, now if you're represented by Adam, what do you have? You have sin and death. But if you're represented by Jesus Christ, you have forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. That's the big picture. Today in verses 12 through 14, the scope is more limited. Paul simply wants to show us that we're dead. We're dead in Adam. And there are three things that are true because you and I were born dead in Adam. Number one, you and I are born guilty sinners. So it is a truism that you and I sin because we're born sinners. Okay? Number two, you and I and every person that's ever been born, because you're dead in Adam, you are born in a state that you can do nothing ultimately pleasing to God meaning you can't come to faith in the Son, nor can you obey God as you ought. All right? The third thing that is true because we are dead in Adam is that you and I need to be born again. The only remedy for dead people is not to try harder. Why? Because dead people can't do anything. What you and I need is regeneration, and through regeneration, God brings us to faith in His Son and the Son who gives us forgiveness of sins and life overcoming Adam's sin and death. Okay, so that's what this is all about. Now, before I move on, let me say this. This is a very important passage for our biblical worldview. If you don't understand original sin and that you're dead in Adam, you'll end up distorting the gospel of grace. If you have something to do with salvation, you'll end up distorting that, the fact that God does it all for you. Okay, so this is absolutely essential that you get this down. If we don't understand original sin, we'll end up distorting the gospel later in our theology. Okay, so let's begin in verse 12, where Paul's grand point, I think, is that every person is dead in Adam. Let me begin. By the way, I'm going to be unpacking a lot of data here, so don't zone out. Okay, it's going to be a lot of data on this one, but it's, it's important. So let's dig in. Paul says, therefore, just as through one man... Sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, I first want you to notice that there's a therefore. And the reason why I think Paul has a therefore, it's thematic. He's connecting the themes. The last section was about our assurance of future glory. Now, the basis of that assurance is in the new Adam Christ. That's what Paul is going to be laboring. So it's a thematic therefore. He's coming to a new section. But notice this next phrase. He says, just as through one man, 
sin entered into the world. Now, the one man, of course, is, is who? It's Adam, isn't it? And Adam is the one who was the original sinner. But curiously, Paul certainly knew, according to 1 Timothy 2.14, that Eve was technically the first sinner. She was the one who originally succumbed. So why is Adam on the hook? Well, there's two reasons and good reasons why Adam is regarded as the first sinner. Number one, he was the one who was given the instructions by God. God said, you can eat of all of these trees in the garden, but there's this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you can't eat of. Those instructions were given to Adam. Now, the second and more important reason is Adam is head of the wife. Now, all people are equal in their importance before God, but there are different roles. And Adam, being the head of his wife, should have corrected her and said, no, you cannot partake in this. You're sinning against the Lord. I had a very godly professor at Northwestern College who said, in a real way, Adam hung his wife out to dry. Why didn't he correct her? Now, notice he says, through Adam, sin entered into the world. Now, when he says the world here, certainly we know that the whole cosmos, everything in creation is affected by the fall. But here, I think Paul's point when he refers to the world is more limited. I think he's referring, about hum- referring to humanity, that humanity ends up rebelling against God because sin came to them through Adam. Now, no- notice the next proposition. He also says, and death through sin. Literally, it's the death through the sin. So sin is depicted as the cause of death. Why do we die? Because of sin. Sin caused death. There's a causal relationship. Now, what kind of death is Paul referring? Well, many people believe that, well, it's probably just physical death, but I don't think that that's the case. I think it's both physical and spiritual death. Okay, so what kind of death came? Physical and spiritual. Now, remember, in the Bible... Death is not a form of annihilationism, okay? Oftentimes you hear people say, well, they were destroyed or they're dead. And a lot of people, I think, have the assumption that that means someone ceases to exist. But in the Bible, death is always separation, okay? So physical death would be separation of body and soul. Spiritual death is separation from God. And you see, this, the spiritual separation from God or the spiritual death is probably what's foremost in Paul's mind. Because at the end of the day, people are separated from God, not just one day in the lake of fire, but all the unregenerate are separated from God's saving grace. They have his common grace, right? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. But they are separated from God's saving grace, and they are separated from being able to do anything that is pleasing to God. And so I think when we look at death coming, it's both physical and spiritual death. Now, notice this next proposition. I'll underline it. It says, and so death spread to all men. And so the simple point that Paul's making is all end up dying because of this sin. Spiritual and physical death spreads to all people. But then he goes to the very next proposition, all sin. But notice all sin is connected by a because. Now, this is where we have a little bit of fly in the ointment ourselves. Because because, that sounded like a pun there, because is not at all clear that that should be the translation. The Greek phrase that we're looking at are two terms, epi, the preposition, and ho, the relative pronoun. So what I want to do is unpack some different translations that are possible because as you will see, it greatly affects our understanding and interpretation of this text. Now, I'm going to take you through a little bit of history here in just a moment of how this text has been translated in the past. But of all the research that I did this week, and I did a lot on this epi and ho, that's what you see translated because in the New American Standard Bible before you. What I found is that epi, ho, there's no set rule to how it should be rendered. It's used so many different ways But what I think we can say is that it always shows a relationship between two propositions, and the context is the king. Context tells you what the relationship is. Now, let me tell you how this has been translated in the past. How many here have heard of Augustine or Augustine? I don't want to start a 
a big controversy here. If you say Augustine, I'm not going to separate for, from you, although it's August, uh, Augustine. <laughs> okay, so many of you have heard of Augustine or Augustine. He was a 5th century theologian. And what he did is he rendered this phrase, in whom. So let's read it. He said, and so death spread to all men, in whom all sinned. Now, why is that important? Well, Augustine taught a concept called the seminal view of original sin. And what he believed is that every single human being was in the loins, as it were, of Adam. And so Adam's sin is imputed to us biologically. I am a sinner because my parents were sinners. They're sinners because their parents were sinners, etc., all the way back to Adam. And so the imputation of Adam's sin is biological. Now, Augustine had a lot going for him. At the end of the day, he has the big picture. You and I are sinners because of Adam's sin. But where I think we have to disagree with them, and I'll, I'll talk about this in further messages, is number one, on the way of imputation. Imputation means that the sin is credited to us. I don't think the Bible teaches that it comes through genetics per se. As you'll see in Romans 5, our guilt is because it is given to us directly. When Adam sinned, we sinned. But the other problem that Augustine had was in the way he translated this passage. If Paul had meant to say in whom, he could have said that very clearly by substituting the preposition epi with n. And then there'd be no debate. It would just be in whom. But Paul didn't say that. So I don't think that that's what Paul intended. I think we can eliminate in whom as a possibility. Now, the other one that you see before you on the screen is the causal view. And this idea would be, just as you see on the screen, that death spread to all men because all sinned. So sin is the cause of death, okay? And that's certainly a possibility. In fact, it's a good one. Now, the only problem with this view is there's a little bit of ambiguity. What is the ambiguity? Notice at the end of the sentence, it says all sinned. Well, did all sin because they followed Adam's example and they sinned of their own volition? Or did they sin because in Adam they're born sinners? It's not clear. Now, to be fair, later in Romans 5, 15 through 21, Paul will clear it up and he'll say, no, Adam's sin is credited to your account. But it's not at all clear necessarily, I think, with the because. And so that leads me to a third option. And some very good scholars hold to this today, men like Tom Schreiner and Robert Mounts. And they would say it's a consecutive use of epi, and the relative pronoun ho, and they would translate it with the result that. So let's read that. It says, And so death spread to all men with the result that all sinned. Now notice, this is the converse of what we just read. The because view, sin causes death. But here, if this is correct, what Paul is saying is that, no, death really is what causes people to sin. The reason you and I sin is because we're dead. And that's all we can do. And in a sense, I think Paul really wraps it up and makes it very succinct at that point if that's the way we should render it. Now, I think at the end of the day, it's the last two options. It's one of those. But let me just further explore this, and I'll show you why number three, I think, has a little bit more going for it. Remember, as we're looking at Romans 5.12, let's dig in. There's four distinct but related propositions that Paul is giving us. And what I'm going to show you is I'm going to show you how they relate to one another as we examine these two different views. Well, let's look at the because or the sin-caused-death view. What Paul is saying in Romans 12a is that through one man <clears throat> came sin. The one man is, is who? It's Adam, of course. Okay, well, then in 12b, he says death came through sin. 12c, he says death came to all men. 12d, he says because all sinned. Okay, and that very well could be exactly what Paul had intended to say. But now let's contrast that with the other view, with the result that view. Here, death causes sin. It's the opposite idea. 12a, through one man came sin. Death came through sin. Death came to all men, 12c. 12d, it's with the result that all sinned. Now, for two reasons, I think the second option is better. Let me give you the first reason. The first reason is redundancy. 
Notice up above, I'm going to pull out my pointer. Usually I get in trouble when I do that. Notice up above here, does everyone see my pointer? All right. It's visible back there? Okay. Notice here in proposition, the first B, Paul says death came through sin. So what causes death? Sin. Sin causes death. Well, does he not say really the same thing here? Sin causes death. And in a sense, it's redundant. Now, to be fair, Paul does add the element of all, and maybe that's all he intends, is just to add that element. All right? But I want you to see below, you don't have the same redundancy. Notice here, yes, sin causes death, but now you have death causing all of us to sin. Why do we sin? We're dead in Adam. There's not the same redundancy. Now, the other reason I think the second option has more going to it or for it is because at the end of the day, it gets rid of the ambiguity. When it says all sinned, you're not left hanging. Well, why did all sin? Because they just followed in their own example or in Adam's example or they did it themselves. No, all sin, why? Because you're dead in Adam. I think that that's exactly Paul's point. And further, look at what we see in the wider epistles. When you go to Ephesians 2, we're dead in our trespasses. Colossians 2, you're dead in your trespasses. We're going to see in the next couple verses that death reigns. Every single person is going to be a sinner. Why? Because they're dead in Adam. And dead people, as I taught teenagers in a Bible study long ago, they can't do anything except what? Stink it up. They can't do anything pleasing to God. They sin. And I think that that's exactly what Paul is saying to us here today. Now, again, I'm not going to break fellowship if someone has the other view. It's one or the other. But I think if I were to choose one, I think that's more compelling in my humble opinion. Okay, now, let's move on then. We see that death reigns all because of Adam. Verses 13 through 14. Paul said, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Now, first of all, notice here, Paul is transitioning in verses 13 through 14 to a parenthetical explanation, okay? And you'll understand why he's doing that in just a moment. But notice he begins by saying, for until the law, sin was in the world. He begins by making the assertion, before the Mosaic law, sin was in the world. Now, why is that important? Well, if you think about it, the Mosaic law does not come about until around 1445 B.C., And yet, were there not sinners prior to that for thousands of years? Paul is asserting, yes, indeed, there were. Now, notice here in the red, he raises a challenge. He says, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, why is Paul doing that? Well, here Paul must address a question that he himself has raised. Now, what is the question? The question is, how could sin exist if there was no law to specify sin? Now, you might be sitting in your seat saying, Eric, why does Paul have to address that question? Because he brought it up, okay? If you're a writer writing something and you bring up an issue, you probably have to address it. Remember back in Romans 4.15, Paul said, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation, So now he has to address that. How could sin be imputed to people when there was no law? Now, what is his answer? Well, in a sense, it's just another assertion. He begins with a strong contrast of conjunction, I think rightly rendered here, nevertheless. He says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Does everyone see that? So here, Paul affirms that sin was reckoned to people's account. All people had sin, or excuse me, death reigning over them. And as death reigned over them, they would physically die, and they were separated from being able to do that which is pleasing to God. And so he just asserts that. Notice Paul doesn't explain why God counts sin against people when there is no law. He just simply asserts the proof that death reigned, that death reigned over people prior to the law, Therefore, sin must be imputed. Now, there's an important concept that I think we can derive from this. And that is, 
I think the implication here is that there is a moral law of God that transcends even the Mosaic Covenant. In fact, if you look at all of the covenants, God's moral law, in a sense, transcends them all. And so no matter if you're in the Mosaic Covenant or the New Covenant, yes, these are codifications of God's will. But what we see here is that people were sinning even despite being under the Mosaic Covenant. God's moral law, in that sense, transcends. Now, how could people be guilty of sinning against God without the law? Well, didn't Paul tell us that back in Romans 2? He did, didn't he? He said that the Gentiles without the law had it written upon their hearts. In fact, in Romans 2.15, he says, their own conscience bears witness against them. And so certainly people are a law unto themselves in that they have an innate sense placed by God of right and wrong. It's not infallible, but it is condemnatory upon those who are without the law. And I think that that's, again, what Paul's pointing out here. Now, notice to this, he adds, he says, it's even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Now, what is Paul saying here? I think what he's getting at is, remember, Adam was given divine revelation. He was the one who was specifically told by God, you can eat of all these trees, but not that tree. Now, every single person that lives after him, prior to the coming of the law, not, excuse me, Not all of them had divine revelation. And so I think the implication is, yes, they didn't sin in the same sense, but they're still guilty. And again, I think it's because of the Romans 2.15 idea that their conscience bears witness against them. They still sinned, sinned and violated God's moral law. Now he says, he goes on to say that Adam was a type of, of him who was to come. And now at this time, Paul starts to transition and assert that at the end of the day, humanity only has two different representatives. It's either Adam or it's going to be Jesus Christ. Why? Because Adam was a type of the one to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Adam, death reigns. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, life reigns. And at the end of the day, That's the choice for all of humanity. Who is going to be your representative? It's either Adam or it's Christ. But every single person on the planet has a representative. Every one. Now, people may say, well, I don't believe it. Well, Paul said it, that you do. (laughs) And in Adam, what kind of representation do you have? Not good. You're a dead sinner. That's the state that you and I were born into. Not people who are just spiritually weak, who are somewhat unpleasing to God, but we were born people who are dead in our sins. I think that that's what Paul is sharing with us here in these verses today. Now, with that, let me turn to a couple of points of application that I have for you. Number one, we must understand that every person is born spiritually dead into this world because of Adam's sin. And again, if we don't get that right, It's going to have consequences for our understanding the gospel of grace. You don't need God's grace if you have human ability. What Paul was telling us today is that none of us have human ability to do that which is pleasing to God. Why? We're dead in Adam. All right, number two, along with this, we must understand the limitations of spiritually dead people and the need for regeneration. Let's begin with number one. And what I want to do, and I want to begin by talking about spiritual death physical death, and then relate that to both believers and unbelievers. Because again, I want to affirm that what death ultimately is, is separation from God. First of all, spiritual death. Spiritual death is separation from God. Again, not just one day in the lake of fire, but for people who are unregenerate, even today as they live, they're separated from God, his face, his favor, from their being able to please him. All right, now, Physical death is separation as as well, separated from body and soul, okay? So body and soul will be separated at physical death, all right? Now, let me relate both of these. And again, I want you to see that death is not annihilation. So when Paul says that in Adam, all are dead, what he's talking about are both of these things. Both of these things are true. Now, let's relate both spiritual and physical death for just a moment to unbelievers and to believers. What about an unbeliever? Well, an unbeliever lives in this world 
and they are spiritually dead. They can't please God. They are not given his saving grace until unless God sovereignly chooses to do so. And therefore, they are lost. Well, when they die, their body and soul is separated. That's what physical death is. And their body goes into the ground, and their soul goes to Hades, a temporal holding place in torment awaiting the lake of fire. Now, what happens according to the book of Revelation at the white throne judgment is one day their body and soul will be put back together. I'm just talking about the unregenerate. They'll be raised from the dead. But they are raised, body and soul come back together for the strict purpose of being thrown into the lake of fire and being separated from God forever. And so do you notice then that for the unregenerate, spiritual death, that is, I'm talking about unbelievers, being separated from God is all they will ever know. Separated from his saving favor. Now, let's contrast that with a believer. A believer, the moment you come to faith and you are converted to Jesus Christ, you are never separated from God again. Oh yes, one day you will die and you'll have separation physically of your body and soul. But according to 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with whom? With the Lord. And so even if you physically die, you're never separated from God. And then you're going to be raised up. And you're going to be raised up to reign with Christ upon the earth. And then you're going to be given new heavens, new earth, and a new Jerusalem, always to reign with him. And so for the believer, the moment you come to Jesus Christ, the moment you trust upon him, you're never separated from God anymore. The the spiritual separation is all done. All right, so that's what Jesus Christ is going to overcome for us. And at the end, he overcomes physical death. As well. Now, what I want to do is I want to show you evidence that indeed death is both spiritual and physical. Let me show you some evidence from Genesis 2. Here we have the instructions that God gave to Adam in the garden. It says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, we know that Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation, but did they physically die immediately? Well, no. And so what's very interesting is when we get to Genesis 3.22, the death that comes immediately, as it were, is separation from God. They're kicked out of the garden. And so you do see spiritual death, that they don't have the same walk with God in the cool of the garden as they used to. And then, of course, later, Adam and Eve physically die separation of body and soul, okay? So here, when we look at the text in Genesis, we see, yes, spiritual death is real. They were separated from the garden. Now, if you're going to take one passage and you want to use a passage to prove that death is separation from God, here's one that you can use. Isaiah 59.2. Isaiah writes, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now, here in this text, we have what's called synonymous parallelism. It's a Hebraic expression where he's basically saying the same thing twice. Everything in red that I have highlighted is reiterated in what you see in black. Now, notice in black when he says, your sins have hidden his face from you. In the ancient Near East, a king would demonstrate favor to someone by them being able to see his face. If you have face time with the king, it meant you had his favor. And in a sense, I think this is carried over into the biblical understanding. Remember in number six, the ironic benediction, may the Lord's face shine upon you. If the Lord's face is shining upon you, it means you have his favor. You're not separated from him. And so what Isaiah is saying is that if you're a sinner, your sins have separated you from God. And that's what Jesus Christ came to remedy. Dear brothers and sisters, clearly death is separation from God. And so when Paul taught us here this morning in Romans 5, 12 through 14, that we are all dead in Adam, both of these things are true. We are born in a state where we're separated from being able to do anything pleasing to God and we will physically die as well. Now, unfortunately, this is not 
widely believed, this being born dead in Adam, by the vast majority of people who even claim the name of Christ today. The vast majority of people on the planet who claim the name of Christ don't believe that we are dead in Adam. So what I want to do is I want to do a little bit of systematic theology with you, and I want to show you some of the other views out there and how people understand the relationship between Adam's sin and our sin. So I'm going to show you a little bit of a grid here. I'm going to talk about guilt, whether or not Adam's guilt is credited to us, moral corruption that comes from Adam, and the extent, are we alive, dead, or weakened? Now, I want to begin with somebody in history named Pelagius. How many in here have heard of Pelagius? Many of you have. Well, Pelagius was a monk who was born originally in England, but in the 4th into the 5th century, he started to debate with a man named Augustine that I'd mentioned earlier. And the big debate surrounded a comment that Augustine had made, and I'll just cite it for you because I can never remember King's English in my mind. This is what Augustine said that set Pelagius off. Augustine said, Grant what thou commandest, and command what thou dost desire. Unquote. Okay, now let me take the thus and thous out. What Augustine was saying is, Lord, you command us what to do, but you have to enable us to do it. And this set Pelagius off. He couldn't stand it. Why? Because he was a humanist. He was a moralist. And he believed that human beings were not dead in Adam. He believed in human ability. And so when we look at Pelagius' teachings, he said, no, there's no guilt that comes from Adam. There's no moral corruption that comes from Adam. In fact, we're completely alive, and we can do that which is pleasing to God. Now, you might say, well, that's Pelagius. That's in the 5th century. No, it's still alive and well with us today, as I'll show you a quote later from a man named Charles Finney. Now, let's go ahead to Arminianism. The Arminian position, and this is, I would say is probably the default position of most churches in America today. The Arminian position comes from a man named Jacob Arminius. And what he said was, no, Adam's guilt is not credited to us. Yes, we can die and we can be punished, but it's not because of Adam and what he did. It would only be because of our sins. And so Adam's guilt is not credited. Yes, there's moral corruption, but this moral corruption is in a sense, remedied by what he called prevenient grace. Now, what's prevenient grace? Prevenient grace is a first grace. And so what the Arminians believe is that, yes, people were affected by Adam, but they believe that God gives a first grace to every single person so that every single person is enabled by God to believe upon Jesus Christ and to do that which is pleasing to God. So at the end of the day, why do some people come to faith in Jesus and others do not? Well, in the Arminian position, it's because of their free will. And so at the end of the day, the extent of moral corruption is just that we're weakened. We're not spiritually dead. Does everyone follow that? Now, let me give you one more position. It's the semi-Pelagian position. And this was originally espoused by a man named John Cassian, 5th century. Now, what he taught and what semi-Pelagians believed was that, yes, grace was necessary for salvation, but God only bestows it upon those who first reach out to him. So you can see then, yes, he believed in guilt. Yes, he believed in moral corruption, but the moral corruption wasn't so bad that you and I didn't have the ability to reach out and first seek for God. And because we would seek for God, God would give us his grace. So you see then we weren't dead in Adam in this view. Now, I know many of you are sitting in your seat and you're saying, well, why does that matter today? Well, I was talking to Bob about a man named Charles Finney, and I know Bob has written about him. And so I asked him, I said, what kind of influence did Charles Finney have on the American church at large? And he says he is probably the leading influencer in American revivalism today. Okay, now let me read to you what Charles Finney believes. Charles Finney said this, he says, quote, if Jesus Christ had obeyed the law as our substitute, then why should our own return to personal obedience be insisted upon as the essential ingredient of our salvation, unquote? What's Finney saying? Finney's saying is we have the ability to obey, and that's how we're saved. We don't need the substitution of Christ. And so Finney believed in human ability. He didn't believe what Paul was teaching us today in Romans 5, 12 through 14. And so he was a full Pelagian. 
And this type of theology influenced Jerry Falwell. It influenced Billy Graham. Why is Decision Magazine called Decision Magazine? Because people aren't dead. And by the way, I have affinity towards Billy Graham. I worked in his phone bank for a while, not for pay, but volunteer. It affected Keith Green. How many have heard of that songwriter? The Vineyard Movement, Promise Keepers. And this idea that human beings are able to save themselves, that it's not that we're spiritually dead. If that's true, then salvation is of man. And this is what leads to the seeker-sensitive movement. The seeker-sensitive movement, if salvation is of man, we better dim the lights just right, you better play the music just right, because Mm -hmm. salvation is up to us. And we better not offend people by teaching them Christian doctrine. And all of a sudden, you have a church that's so dumbed down, it's open for the emerging church. It's open to Marxism. It's open to New Age spirituality. It's opened up to all of these things. And so the average Christian takes the doctrines of Karl Marx and thinks it's from Jesus Christ. And you and I say, what's happened to our society? Let me ask you the question. How is the world to have a biblical worldview if the church doesn't? And all of these bad ideas stem from the fact that we're not dead in Adam. You want to know why we're in such trouble today when you look around America? It's because people don't believe we're dead in Adam. It comes from that. That's how important this is. We're dead. We're dead in Adam. Brothers and sisters, the truth of the matter is, the majority of evangelicalism looked at salvation like this. They look at a shipwreck and they say, you know what? There's a shipwreck and all of us as human beings are flailing in the ocean and God comes by with a boat. And if you and I will just reach up by our own power and grab onto God's hand, he'll save us. But the depiction in scripture is far different. The depiction in scripture, yes, it's a shipwreck and we're all dying. In fact, we're all dead. And truth be told, you and I are not flailing in the ocean as human beings. We're all floating in the ocean. We've already drowned. We're dead. And God comes by with his rescue boat. And unless he sovereignly reaches down and grabs people and pulls them into his boat and breathes new life into them, they will perish forever. That's the biblical conception of salvation. Dear brothers and sisters, we here at Gospel of Grace believe in what's called the federal headship. And I'll explain further in our upcoming messages what this doctrine is. But let me just say this. In the federal headship view, Adam is our first representative. And when he sinned, we sinned. It was credited to our account. So we are guilty in Adam. We are morally corrupt in Adam. Now, how morally corrupt are we? We're dead. That's the correct view. You and I are floating dead in the water. We need God's regeneration. Now, let me say this. If it were true that you and I are born in this state, you should see biblical passages to suggest that people are born sinners. Well, lo and behold, we have them. Look at this. Wouldn't you know I would take one with me? All right. David says in Psalm 51.5, he says, Behold, I became a sinner when I became older and I worked at it or because of the influence of society and all these evils that people did to me. No, he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He was dead from the womb, and that's why he was a sinner. Look at what he says in Psalm 58.3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. The scriptures are very clear that people are born sinners. They don't have to work up to it. They're born sinners. Why? Because they're dead in Adam. All right, now, I want to talk about some of the ramifications now of being dead in Adam. First of all, consider this. The spiritually dead are in bondage to sinful loss. And this is what Jesus taught in John chapter 8. He said, you're slaves. He's talking to the Jews. And how did they respond? Did they say, oh, you're right. We are slaves. No, they said, we've never been slaves to anyone. We're sons of Abraham. And what does he say to him? He says, someone who sins is a slave to sin, and the slave shall not remain in the house forever. So, dear ones, what we're going to show you here in this text is that one of the problems of being born spiritually dead is that you're a slave to sin. And this is what Paul says. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, he says, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Let me just stop there for a moment. This is, I think, exactly what Paul was saying in Romans 5.12, that we were dead in Adam. 
Paul says the same thing again in Colossians 2. So I think that's further corroboration that that is an idea that comes from Paul. So you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which he says you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, when Paul says here in verse 1 of Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our trespasses, is he talking about physical death, or is he primarily talking about spiritual death? He's talking about spiritual death, isn't he? How do we know that from the context? Well, notice he talks about us who are spiritually dead before conversion. We walked Peripateo means that you live it out. We lived according to the course of this world, the world in rebellion against God. Notice he said, you lived in the lust of your flesh. So he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death, that we were dead in our trespasses. And so what did we do? We couldn't do anything that was pleasing to God. We couldn't obey him as we ought. And so that's why he concludes. He says, we were by nature, notice in the red at the bottom, children of wrath. What's very interesting in the Bible is you'll see often descriptions of son of this or like son of perdition. Son of perdition means a person characterized by. Okay, son of perdition would be someone who's characterized by perdition. That's where they're going. It's who they are. A child of wrath is a person who is characterized by wrath. Not only do they perform wrathful deeds upon their fellow human beings, but they are those who are marked out for God's destruction. Why? Because they're separated from God. They're dead in their trespasses. And what we have to know is that those who are dead in their trespasses, they're slaves to sin. That's one of the ramifications of spiritual death. Now, the spiritually dead are also not helped by the law. And I want you to know that from Scripture because I want you to know that what's required to get us out of the spiritually dead condition is not moralism. It's not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps by trying harder or doing a little bit better, it won't work. And we can prove that. Here's a text that does prove it. Notice what Paul says in Romans 7, 8 through 11. He says, But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Now, notice the refrain that he uses in the red. Twice he says, sin taking opportunity through the commandment. Bob and I had the opportunity to talk about something similar in Galatians. And you probably remember this, Bob. We were doing radio and Bob had a great analogy. And I want to share it with you. When it says that sin took opportunity through the commandment, think of there being a big machine gun bunker. That's the commandment. And the idea is the machine gun bunker is a position in which sin could, be, could enter into and gun us down. Sin uses the beachhead or the bunker of the commandment to wreak havoc against us. Now, as I say that, I'm not saying, and Paul's not saying, that it's because the law is defective. In fact, in Romans 7:12, he immediately says that the law is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is not the commandment, it's our sin nature. How many in here have heard the saying, like oil and water? You might see a couple, they don't get along, they're like oil and water. In a sense, that's the way it is with the commandment in our sin nature. It's like oil and water. The commandment can't remedy the problem. In fact, Paul says it's so severe that when the commandment came, it increases sin, as he'll say in Romans 5. It made it worse. And all of you know that. Why? Because I know most of you in here at one time had a three-year-old. And if you tell a three-year-old, he will go, or she, will go their whole lives, they'll go by the cookie jar, go by the cookie jar. But if you say, hey, and by the way, do this for an experiment. This is really fun. Say, you know, I know you've been, whatever you do, don't go in that cookie jar. Now, once you've told them, that's all they can do. It's like they're, they're like gravity sucks them into the cookie jar. Why? Because the commandment incites them. That's the sin nature. That's what Paul is saying. So, dear ones, the law will not help us out of our, 
problem of being spiritually dead in Adam. Dead people can't respond to the law. What we really need is regeneration. And so that's what we want to end up on, dear brothers and sisters. What's the remedy to being spiritually dead? One more, pro- one more time, I'm going to show you the need for spiritual regeneration. Romans 8.8, 8, Paul says, And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, in the flesh is synonymous with being dead in Adam. Now, here's what I want you to do. Write in your notes next to Romans 8.8, 8, Hebrews 11.6. Because what is Paul, or excuse me, not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews, I don't think it was Paul, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11.6 says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. When you put those two passages together, what that tells us in Romans 8.8 8 is that nobody in the flesh can come to faith in Jesus Christ. They can't do anything pleasing to God. In fact, this is exactly why Jesus said in John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, when Jesus says no one can, he's not talking about permission, is he? He's not saying to people, you can't come to me. What he's saying is you don't have the ability. The term can there is dunamis. It's the term for power. Literally, you could render it, no one has the ability to come to me. Now, what's the condition? How can anyone come? He says, it's only unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, some Arminians have tried to claim who believe in human ability that here, God draws people, and he draws all people by wooing them. The problem with that is oftentimes in the New Testament, the term elkuo, which is the term draw, is used, for example, drawing a fishing net or drawing a sword out of a scabbard. But let me ask you, how many of you have ever wooed a sword out of a scabbard or wooed your fishing net or wooed your lawnmower or whatever? No, you've got to drag it. And in the same way, I think that that's implied here. It's not that you and I are cooperating, it's that God is doing it. Now, the further thing I want you to see here is notice, Jesus says, unless the Father sent me, draws him, and he says, I will raise him up on the last day. That raising up isn't, well, some are raised to judgment and others to salvation. The being raised up here in the context of this passage is salvific only. So think about the problem that the Arminian has. If they believe that God draws everyone, and that's what they believe through prevenient grace, well, then God has to raise everyone up to salvation. They'd be left with universalism. So this text, dear ones, in John 6, cannot be understood properly if you're an Arminian. You have to distort it, which should tell us the Arminians are wrong. The Bible's right. But it makes perfect sense if you believe that people are dead in Adam. Dear brothers and sisters, what do dead people do or need, I should say? They need to be born again. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 3, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the good news, as Paul says here in Colossians 2.13, and that's exactly what God does for his people. Paul said, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, look at what God did. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. The only way out from being spiritually dead is being born again that God through his power would enable us to do that which is pleasing by coming to his son. Now, as I've talked here today, I've talked a lot about the effectual call, the call that God gives to his elect, but I also want to end by doing what we call giving the universal call. The universal call God uses to save people, and it has to do with the gospel. Some of you perhaps are new here, and you're wondering, what is the gospel? The gospel's good news. But I always tell people the good news only makes sense in light of the bad news. And the bad news is that every single person, as I shared today, is dead in Adam, can do nothing ultimately pleasing to God. And I mean that ultimately pleasing because we always fall short of his glory. And we are subject to his wrath. Now, that's very bad news. But that's precisely where the good news shines. Just like a diamond, when a jeweler shows you a diamond, he shows you in light of the dark background. The gospel shines in light of the dark background. The good news that remedies our problem is that God sent forth his son, the son who existed as God and with God from all eternity. At a point in time, he humbled himself and became a man through a virgin birth. 
Jesus did that so he could be truly man, truly God. He could be our new representative as the God-man. And he would live the perfect life that no human ever could, undoing the effects of our first representative, Adam, who failed. And if people will trust upon him, he'll be your new representative. And then his righteousness will be credited to your account so that you can live with God. But Jesus doesn't just come in to live the perfect life. He also goes to pay off a debt. He came to die on the cross, a substitutionary death. Jesus Christ, who is the just, on behalf of sinners who are the unjust, so that he could bring us to God. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself the full measure of God's wrath that you and I deserve to be punished with, and he paid it off for those who believe. This Jesus, the the fact that Jesus did these things is proven when he was raised from the dead three days later. His resurrection proves that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him. This Jesus ascended into the heavens. He's currently seated bodily at the right hand of God where he lives to make intercession for his people. It's promised from that position that he's coming again and he's coming to bring a glorious kingdom and it will be on earth and there will be a resurrection and the separation of physical death will be remedied and body and soul will come together and his people will reign forever with him. And this Jesus commands that if you want to be part of that kingdom and not subject to his judgment, that you have to repent and believe the gospel. What is repentance? Repentance has to do with you're going away from God and his purposes. And what you're to do is to do a U-turn in life, to turn and turn to God on his terms. What are his terms? Faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. If you will trust upon Jesus Christ, you have the promise from the scriptures that you'll have the righteousness of Christ credited to your account and you'll have your sins removed as far away as the east is from the west. That is, they'll be eternally expunged. Today is the day to come, upon, to, come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and overcome the death in Adam. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that you would give us your word that we would not be left in the dark, that we would understand how to overcome this problem that we have in Adam. And I do pray, Heavenly Father, for our church at large and our church here at Gospel of Grace, that we'd be people who believe what your scriptures say, that we'd understand that we are not people who are able to do of our own power that which is pleasing to you, that we need your power, your grace, your regeneration in Jesus Christ. I pray for our loved ones, our family and friends, our coworkers who don't know you, Lord. I do pray for their salvation. I pray that they would hear your gospel. Put it upon our lips and give us courage. I pray, Lord, that many here would proclaim your excellencies and your power to save. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.